Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus, the 39th chapter. Exodus chapter 39, we'll be there in just a moment. Again, welcome. Thank you all for being here this morning. It's good to see such a large crowd here on this Lord's Day. Appreciate um, comments from the men and the, the service up to this point. We come together to remember our Lord on this day and to do it uh, in, in the proper way and reverently. And I believe that we have done that and I hope that we continue in our reverent service of worship to, to our God. You know, being a Christian is not a passive endeavor. It requires that we do certain things. And God has always required action of his children, going back all the way to the first sacrifices that were offered there by, by Cain and Abel. But how much are we to do? What level of service will be pleasing to God? Let's understand this from the outset. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Salvation is not a result of our works. Let's make that very clear to understand. Salvation is only the free gift of God in Jesus Christ. He has made that available to us. But also understand that our faith is demonstrated in our works. Verse 10 there of Ephesians 2 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God has prepared the works that we are to do. We are to walk in them. So that's from the very beginning God has set that aside. And we are created in Christ Jesus to do those things. But again, make it very clear that salvation is the free gift of God. Not of anything that we do so that we may not boast. To better understand what God expects of us today, it's always beneficial to look back and how God has dealt with his people over time. And looking for this lesson, we'll look at his level of expectation throughout the years of, of what service to him meant. So if you're there in chapter 39 of Exodus, we want to talk about what it took to prepare to worship God under the law of Moses. Now, what I would like to do is read chapters 39 and 40 here of Exodus in their entirety. But for the sake of time, we won't do that. But as we read a few excerpts here from chapter 39 first, I want you to, to, to think about what it took to serve Jehovah God for the children of Israel. Just a quick reminder of where we are in history here. The children of, Egypt, uh, the children of Israel have come out of the land of Egypt. They're making their way towards the promised land. And as they do, God is giving to them instructions on how he is to be worshipped. And he has given them most recently instructions on how to build the tabernacle and how to clothe the priests that would serve the tabernacle. So we come here to chapter 39, 
Verse 1, it says, Moreover, from the blue and purple and scarlet material, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place, as well as the holy garments which were for Aaron, just as the Lord had commanded. Verse 2, And he made an ephod of gold, and of blue and purple and scarlet material, and twisted linen. goes on there to describe more about the clothing that the, the priests were to wear. Verse 6, And they made onyx stones like a gold figure setting, and they were engraved like the engraver... Uh, the engravings of a signet, according to the names of the sons of Israel. And they placed them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel, just as the Lord had commanded Moses to do. Here's all the things that are the priestly garments that are to be made, and these skilled workmen that are putting these things together. Verse 8, and he made the breastpiece, the work of skillful workmen, like the workmanship of the ephod, on and on about the things that were dressing, the things that adorned the priests. Verse 22, then he made the robe of the ephod of woven work and all of blue and the opening of the robe was at the top of the center and the opening of the, co of the coat of mail, the binding all around its opening that it might not be torn. Look at all the level of detail that goes into the priestly garments. Verse 27, and they made the tunics of finely woven linen for Aaron and his sons and the turban of fine linen and decorated the caps with linen, the linen breeches for the fine twisted linen, all these things that are detailed. Think about all the preparations that were made just in uh, the priestly garments that they were to wear. Look at verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed and the sons of Israel did according to what the, land, uh, what the Lord had commanded Moses. All the things that the tabernacle was to be constructed of and how it was to be constructed, all those instructions have been given. Note there verse 33. And they brought the tabernacle to Moses... The tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, sockets, the covering of ram skins of dyed red, the covering of the porpoise skins and the screening veil, the ark of the testimony and its poles and the mercy seat, the table and its utensils, the bread of the presence, the pure gold lampstand. I'm skipping a little bit. The gold altar and the anointing oil, verse 39. The bronze altar and its bronze grating, verse 40. The hangings of the court, the pillars, the sockets and the screen and the grate of the court and its cords and the peg and all the equipment for service of the tabernacle. You see all these things that were necessary in constructing the tabernacle and clothing the garments, clothing uh, the, the priests in their appropriate garments so that they may serve the children of Israel. And all these things were just the preparations that were being made. All these things had to be made to construct the tabernacle. But this, the tabernacle still had to be assembled it still had to be put together for them to, to come there to worship. Look in chapter 40, beginning of verse 17. Now it came about in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was erected. And Moses erected the tabernacle, and laid its sockets, and set up its boards, and erected its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle, and put the covering on the tent, on the top, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he took the testimony and put it in the ark and attached the poles to the ark and put it in the mercy seat on top of the, the ark. Think of all the preparation that had to go into this. All the finest detail of the construction of all these things. Verse 33. And he erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil of the gateway to the court. Thus Moses finished the work. Like I said, I wish I could have read all that. 
to see the level of detail that went into serving God. But I think you get to the point, and the point is this. It was at great cost and energy, commitment, and time that worship was to be made to God under the law of Moses. It took a lot. Energy and commitment, cost and time. It took a lot to worship God under the law of Moses. Look over a couple of chapters in Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus talks about the worship, talks a lot about what the priests are involved in, in the worship to God. Here in chapter 8, we have the consecration of the priests. Again, a few excerpts to get the flavor of what we're talking about. Chapter 8, beginning verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments of the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams of the baskets of the unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the door of the meeting. So Moses did as the Lord commanded. Verse 6, Then Moses had Aaron and his sons come near and washed them with water. And he put the tunics on them, girded them with a sash, and clothed them with the robe, and put an ephod on him, and girded him with the artistic band from the ephod. Come down to verse 10. Moses then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. Verse 14. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. Next Moses slaughtered it and took the blood which was on his finger and put some of it around the horns of the altar and purified the altar. Verse 18. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And Moses slaughtered it and sprinkled some of the blood around the altar. Verse 22. Then he presented the second ram and the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons in their hands and the head of the ram. And Moses slaughtered it and took some of the blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Look at all that had to be done to consecrate the priests that would serve God. All the details that were there. Again, we see what level of detail God went to and what he expected of his priests. They were to offer sacrifices on behalf of themselves and of the people. They were expected to follow the instructions. And as you read throughout Leviticus, you will see how much time and effort it would have been for them to fulfill these duties. The point is this. God expected those who stood before him to be prepared by bringing to him the best that they had to offer, both of, the, both of themselves and of the people. God expected that of them. God asked a lot of the Israelites. We often say, you know, that we, we are thankful that we don't live under the law of Moses because of things like this. All the details, all the ordinances that had to be kept. There was a lot that went into the worship of God under the law of Moses. But think about what he did for them. He delivered them out of Egypt. Remember, we've talked about this recently, about the bondage that they were under and how it was increased by Pharaoh. Terrible living conditions that they were in. He brought them out of that. He brought them through the wilderness. 
Remember, some of that was for their own, of their own doing that they had to wander there 40 years. But nevertheless, God led them through, providing for their needs along the way, punishing them when they were disobedient to him, yes, but bringing them out of the land of Egypt, fought for them against their enemies, and delivered them into the land that he had promised. Think about all that he did for them. Now I want you to think about what God has done for us. What has he done for us? The answer is far and abundantly more. In Romans 5 and verse 8, it says that God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is there any higher of a sacrifice than for God to give his only begotten son that we might have salvation? He has made salvation possible through Christ Jesus, just as we read there in Ephesians. That's the free gift of God. He's made salvation available to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Salvation. Do we really grasp that word, what it means? It means saving us from eternal damnation. Making it possible for us to live eternally with him. With our Lord, Jesus Christ, and with the Father, and with the Holy Spirit. Instead of eternal damnation and fires of hell. Now we may think that the Israelites had it tough with the requirements placed on them. And we may think that it's tough living a sacrificial, godly life that God expects Christians to live. But that, does that even come close to sacrificing your only son for a sinful people? We truly don't deserve this free gift, as Scripture points out to us. It's nothing we do, have done, or can do to be worthy of that sacrifice. But this is how God chose to do it. We don't deserve it, but God did it because he loves us. Because he loves us. And now Christians can live in that kingdom that he has always wanted. He has always wanted this relationship of God and child, father and child. That's what he's always wanted. That's what he planned from the very beginning. He planned it to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Look over in 1 Peter chapter 2. God's expectation was this from the very beginning that Peter describes here in 1 Peter 2. David read there from verses 4 through 10. Let's go back and read verses 9 and 10 again. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. For you were once not a people, 
but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter uses descriptions from the Old Testament of God's people to make the point that it has been God's plan all along to establish this everlasting nation. One where we as Christians serve as priests. All of us. Look back there at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That means we're all in the priesthood. We're all serving as priests to God. And we're able to approach God's throne with our own sacrifices. And we now have Jesus as the mediator instead of an earthly high priest. Jesus has become our high priest. And it's through him that we can approach our God. So what do we come to the throne with? What do we approach the throne of God in our hands with? In giving commandments about certain sacrifices uh, that the Israelites were told to make, God says that none shall appear before me empty-handed. God requires a sacrifice. Just as Cain and Abel were required. Just as the children of the law, under the law of Moses the Christian is required to do sacrifice as well. Romans 12, verse 1, talks about being a living sacrifice. This is how we do it now. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. But there's still sacrifice involved. God expects our faith to be as much as those works were in the past. Think about it in these terms. Let's look over in Micah. <clears throat> Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, if that helps at all. It's one of the minor prophets, about midway through the minor prophets. Book of Micah. In chapter 6 in Micah, beginning in verse 6, it says, With what shall I come to the Lord? And bow myself before the God on high. Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? These questions are rhetorical in nature, and they're also somewhat disrespectful, aren't they? They're assuming something about God that's not true. You, you hear the sarcastic tone in that, don't you? Should, should I bring thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? What's it going to take for me to have redemption from my rebellious acts? Look what's said in verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The answer to those rhetorical questions is, man, he's told you what you're supposed to do. And it has nothing to do with all those sacrifices that you just said. It has to do with loving, to, do, to doing justice, to loving kindness, 
into walking humbly with your God. That's what God has asked of you. Does he expect thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? No. But he expects that much faith. How do we demonstrate the faith that we are to have? How do we demonstrate our faith in God? Well, back there in Ephesians 2, verse 10, and James 2, and verse 18, we're told. It says we're told, uh, it says that we are created to do good things for the Lord. We're created to do these things, and God's told us what they are to do, what those things are that we need to do. If we think we can bring 10,000 rivers of oil to God and be saved, we're fooling ourselves. God's never instructed that. But if we have the faith of 10,000 rivers of oil, and we're doing justice, and we're loving kindness, and we're walking humbly in, in, in service with our, with our God, then we are demonstrating the kind of faith that he requires, that he deserves. There are things that this body, this church, engages in. We meet here every Sunday morning to worship. This is what we're doing right here this morning. And there are things that we do, that, that we, we see from Scripture that we're to do. We sing and we pray and we gather around the table to take the Lord's Supper. We give of our means. You have to sit and listen to me for a little while. We come here on Sunday evenings to hear another sermon and to sing and to pray. And we also come together in the middle of the week on Wednesday nights to further study the Bible and to refresh ourselves with singing and with praying. How much of that are you taking advantage of? If you had to stand before God later today, do you think he would be pleased with your level of service? With your participation? With the opportunities that you are taking advantage of? Would he be pleased with that? In order for this body to do the things that we have been commanded to do, to carry out the things that we just mentioned there, singing and praying and Lord's Supper and giving, and there's some other preparations that need to be made too. Bible lessons need to be prepared. Songs need to be selected. Prayers need to be readied. The Lord's Supper needs to be prepared. Bread and the fruit of the vine. There's also some administrative things, things that are necessary in a, in a secondary way because of what we engage in. There's a bulletin that's prepared every week. The duty roster that's on that bulletin. There's articles in the bulletin. There's cleaning and there's upkeep of the building. There's handling the contribution, handling the banking, being good stewards of that. Determining what the Bible study curriculum is going to be coming up in the months and years ahead. Keeping the baptistry ready. All these things that are, are part of the function of this body. 
How much of that are you participating in? No, we don't have the same responsibilities of the tabernacle or of the temple. We don't have the boards and the sockets and the curtains and all those things that are dictated and commanded of the children of Israel. But we do have responsibilities for coming together and the things that are associated with that. How much of that are you prepared or are you participating in? Let me ask this question. How much preparation for your worship was done by other people today? What if the people that made it possible for us to be here today and the things that were prepared and done, what if they decided just not to show up? How much of your worship today was facilitated by other people? Is it too much to ask to give our best to God? Considering what he required of the Israelites, we read so very little of the, of the preparation of the tabernacle and the priests. There's much more written there, and I encourage you to go and read that to see the glorious things that God set up for worship to him and the level of detail that he went through and the commitment of God's people to make those things happen and the costs to make those things happen as well. Consider what he required of the priests, the consecration, the anointing of them, their duties at the tabernacle and their duties at the altar. It took a lot of time and effort and energy. Think about what God has done for us in sending his only begotten son for us, a sinful people. Is it too much to ask to take every opportunity that we have in front of us to serve him? Remember, we demonstrate our faith by the things that we do. If you're there, or you can go back to James chapter 2. This puts it so eloquently about faith and works. James chapter 2, beginning verse 14, says, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you say to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Are you willing to recognize that? It's one thing to show up here um, and come together on these times that we come together, but are we really demonstrating our faith in the God that we serve? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Don't let all that God has done for you go unanswered. Think of what he has done for you. If you're not a child of God, you can be. You can take advantage of the saving grace that he has provided through Jesus Christ. And if you're already a child of God, and you're not living up to the expectation of his service, make the changes necessary. Think about the children of Israel and what they were required to do to serve God. Does your faith equal the amount of faith it took for them to put all those things together? To make all those construction materials for the tabernacle? To make all those clothes and the, the breastplate and the ephod for the priests? Put all those things together to erect the tabernacle so that they could approach God. Is your faith equal to that? If not, I challenge you to increase your faith. And do that by demonstrating in your own life that you love God by serving Him. If you are weak in that area, if you need the prayers of the congregation, whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.